to another episode of Watch the Game, presented by the Nation Network. I'm your host, Sam Blazer, and uh, Cam Lewis will be joining me in just a little bit. But first, I want to give you guys a little bit of a heads up. We'll be having Mike Johnson on this episode from NHL Network. We'll be talking about the Florida Panthers, his most surprising team of the year, and maybe some uh, rules that he'd like to eliminate to make the game just a little bit better. Um, we won't waste your time anymore, and we'll get right into that interview. We'll be right back. We are back, and we are now joined by Mike Johnson, hockey analyst for the NHL Network. Mike, how are you doing today? I'm doing very well, guys. Thanks for having me on. Thank you. Um, first question for me, you know, what made you embrace the analytics movement? You've been one of the first, uh, you know, hockey analysts out there, at least with the stage that you have um, out, you know, to kind of be as big as you are. From from your experience in the league, how can statistical analysis help the players? Is this something that you found early on when you played, or is this more for coaches, systems management, and, you know, roster construction, and et cetera? Uh, well, certainly wasn't around when I played, although I would have been fascinated. I wish someone would go and backlog all when I played and see what my numbers would have been. I think the only year that it was available is my last year, and I was terrible. So uh, my numbers are terrible, but I would have liked to have seen. I thought I was a good defensive player um, throughout my career. Was I? Did I allow fewer shots than my teammates? Did I allow fewer goals than my teammates? Did my goalie save percentage... Um, was it the same? Did it deviate somehow when I played throughout my career? Uh, all these different questions that might help you confirm what you thought about yourself. Um, I wish I could, I could know, but I can't. So for me, it's certainly been a, a more recent development. And I don't think that the players today, um, while they are learning what all, you know, maybe the, the base terminology and what the, what the, some of the terms might mean and the numbers might mean, I don't think they necessarily apply them in their games trying to prove a stat specifically, but I do think it is an opportunity for teams, management, coaches to evaluate or help in the evaluation of players and of their teams and what works and what doesn't. I mean, um, my interest in it is, um, you know, I've always been kind of a math guy that was what my stronger subjects were in when I was in school. And um, I enjoy the statistical analysis and, and, and try to find numbers that can help explain things. So um, that's probably where I was open to it. And, and, you know, this, this whole pro analytics, anti analytics idea in the hockey world. I mean, I think the most reasonable take on it is it's information, the same kind of information that you want to acquire by watching or having played. There's all different ways to acquire information to help uh, understand what's happening, why is it happening, and, and, and who's doing well or not doing as well. And analytics is just another layer of information. So if you want to make the most informed decision, um, generally speaking, you want as much information as you can on any subject, including one as difficult as evaluating players. And I think that's where... Um, I come at it from, um, you know, many times numbers can confirm what you think. And in the situations where they disagree with what you see with your eyes or what you seem to get while watching game, well, then you can dig into it deeper. Are my eyes correct or are the numbers correct? And now that's a fascinating study in trying to analyze hockey games, which I find interesting. So that's kind of where I come from. 
Um, you know, I get numbers are not for everyone. They're certainly not for all players. But as soon as these numbers start impacting roster decisions and maybe more importantly, contracts, then you will have guys start paying a little bit more attention. If, they, if, if they're in a negotiation and they hear about how, um, you know, their zone exits are, are at the bottom of their team or um, whether it's their shot, shot ratios are, are, are not as strong as they want them to be and they're not going to pay them as much or they're going to look to get a different guy whose numbers are better, that's when you'll have current players buy in. But until that happens, um, you know, coaches can use it to divide game plans, but the players generally will still just go out and play. So I can, another question I have, um, more involving mainstream media than um, teams and, you know, like traditional hockey people, I, I, I can empathize with why, you know, a general manager or a coach or even players who have been in the, in the game for decades aren't too interested in changing up the way they, you know, have traditionally viewed the game and how they've had success in the past. But why is it that mainstream media... I guess that's a bit of a generalization, but largely, I like mainstream media doesn't seem to want to embrace this this hmm. analytics discussion. Why? Why? Why is it that you think? Um, well, I mean, I, I think it's key to, to you know we're painting with a very broad brush when you say all mainstream media. I mean, I think there's uh, individuals that are open to it, but like anything that's different, um, there can be a reluctance to um, want to buy into it. Um, I think in this case specifically, um, then some of the numbers can be difficult to understand. Not that anyone's not bright enough, but it, it takes a little bit of work um, to, to dig into the numbers and, and, and try to poke around and, and, and get a lay of the landscape. And I think there is the idea, much like that, that scene in Moneyball, where the scouts are sitting around talking about what, what they like about players – things have always been done a certain way and, and, and whether media members have always covered it a certain way. And um, so there's probably just a hesitancy to embrace the change. So that, that's, that's all part of it. Um, many times for maybe some of the media members um, have contacts within the NHL or within the hockey world that, um, and yet anyone who's running a team now, is unless you're John Chayka, I suppose. But I mean, most guys are in their fifties or above and they, they've been around for a long time. And you know, this is kind of a, they're, they're, they're probably more older school guys who grew up in the seventies and eighties. And that's kind of where they became most familiar with, with hockey. So um, this stuff wasn't really around as an idea back then. And, and maybe for some of the media members, um, they converse frequently with guys with that mindset, which then can help impact their mindset. So um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's all those things rolled into one and, and some guys are more stubborn than others. And, and, um, and also because the reality is that it's difficult in a game that is as fluid as hockey to, to come up with numbers that can, can, can encapsulate everything. I think that's what people like to do, right? They want a number that says this is X and X proves that this player is good. And this is how an X is some, you know, convoluted formula, but it's just a simple number we don't really have that just yet. And guys are trying to work towards it, but we don't have that yet. Um, so maybe that's uh, some of the difficulty as well. Tangentially related to the divide uh, that we you know, kind of just touched on, what do you make of the Florida Panthers situation? For whatever reason, 
the media overall has kind of decided to make this almost the battleground for traditionalists and analytics, which I don't really see, but I, I can kind of understand it from the perspective of, you know, Gerard Gallant's firing when that happened. The constant reshuffling obviously can't be good for the team, and this almost seems like a constant reaction from the media and what they're saying about the organization itself. What do you make of it overall? Yeah, well, I mean, I think right even before what's happened in the last few weeks, I mean, the Panthers were going to be a bit of a case study for um, for the analytics, even the pro analytics guys, they, they want to see the Panthers do really well because they want to prove that, uh, you know, their belief in the numbers, which the Panthers maybe have embraced more so than others, um, can, can work and, and vice versa for the opposite. They want to show that it can't. Um, I think some, listen, Gerard Gallant is a really good guy. Whatever you think about his belief in numbers, he's a good person. He's a good, good coach. He treats people well. He's a good guy to be in a relationship with uh, professionally. So uh, Dale Talon, the same. So I think there are personal relationships where you feel your, your friend or, you know, associate uh, has been slighted in some regard and, and, and some media members or traditionalists may want to, they don't, they, they want to see Florida fail because of that, because it's a personal thing because they like the people that have been replaced. That's a human reaction to a business decision, which is understandable, but maybe, you know, on, on the broader picture, not, not really relative to what we're talking, related to what we're talking about. So, um, yeah, it's, 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 it's very interesting. I mean, I look at it maybe a little bit more clinically in that one, yes, Gerard Gallant, nobody likes the optics of how he was let go in the taxi cab and all that different things. But I also know this in any industry, um, if your boss has a vision of how he wa- he or she wants to do things, and you don't want to do it that way, uh, at some point you probably will not thrive in that organization. So um, th- that's normal. That's, that's the case. And if Gerard Gallant believed in his way of coaching and his style and his application of what he sees and how he evaluates, and that doesn't coexist um, well with what management and the owner thinks, then yeah, of course he's going to get fired. And I know they were over 500, but you can go down lots of different coaches in the last five years that have been fired with winning records. Gerard Gallant's not the first guy with a winning record to be let go. Um, so that's, that's, uh, that, that, that can be explained away in that regard. Um, and, and as far as the shuffling in the front office, you know, again, it's as a player, like you're concerned in, in as much as that it affects you. Am I going to get traded now by Dale Talon or am I going to be traded now by uh, one of the other guys that is, is running the show there? And only in, in, if, if you're Eric Goodbranson, you probably wish Dale Talon was still running the, the show because maybe you don't get traded. That's how players think about it. Um, as a player, you don't really worry about who's the general manager because you don't ever talk to the general manager. He's not, he's out of your sphere of influence. You just worry about what's going on on the ice. But um it's been, it's been interesting because it, it, it really, the Panthers have highlighted the hottest buttons on this debate in that the Panthers won a division last year playing a gritty physical brand that their old school coach really embraced. But if you looked at the numbers and the analytics guys want to talk about the unsustainable save percentage and shooting percentages, the high PDO, uh, and the belief that that was not repeatable, much like it wasn't in Calgary or Colorado, um, then they made changes quicker and in a situation so close to success than 
other NHL franchise have had. So, I mean, it really has just brought to the forefront the two sides of the argument and put them all out there for everyone to deal with. Um, you know, I want all teams to have success, but I want, you know, I'd be happy to see the guys that embrace the analytics have, have success because it's, it's a, it's a different way of thinking. It's not about not watching hockey or not, you know, using all methods to gather information. It's just another method. And you, and, and if you believe in the numbers, then you, you want to see that bear itself out. Do you think that the Panthers situation, I mean, the season hasn't really been ideal for them, obviously, in terms of their spot in the standings. I mean, like their underlying numbers are significantly better than where they were last year. And it's pretty easy to say that even though they made the playoffs, had their best season in franchise history, they they weren't that good last year. But do you think that with the kind of the circus that they've had this year, this the attention in the media, like the constant, like the battle, do you think that's going to be off-putting for other teams in the league to kind of move towards more of a, a numbers-based way of analyzing things? Um, no. I mean, I think perhaps how the optics of how the transition was handled, maybe that might be revisited and how to better um, explain your vision as an organization for whatever decisions you're making, how to better manage personnel decisions both on the ice and in the front office or coaching staff is, staff, and also explain those could be handled better that's maybe where they'll learn from florida but i think if listen teams want to be successful right owners want to win and if the panthers can show that their belief in running things this way or maybe the influence of the numbers on the way they run their team can make them a winner more consistently if that can happen in arizona then i think many more teams who will be uh, happy to jump on board and give uh, the analytics a more prominent role in their decision-making. I, mean, I think all teams look at it in some capacity. It's just a question of how much authority, how much influence those numbers have. But if teams are successful, then I don't think there'll be any hesitation. I know it hasn't been pretty in Florida. I know it hasn't been smooth. But uh, if it works, if the team that they put together and the rationale behind putting that team together is, translates to wins, then I don't think any other organization would be hesitant to do it. For sure. Now, you know, kind of switching gears here, and this is the last question for me, and Mike, we really appreciate your time. Uh, what is your favorite under-the-radar storyline of the year? I feel like there's all kinds of teams right now that are kind of coming out of nowhere, but there has to be one overall that uh, you've especially been cheering for. Hmm. Uh, you know what? That's, that's a good question. Um, I mean, I think... I think what's happened with Columbus is uh, is surprising on so many levels. Um, I think just with the way John Tortorella's last couple of jobs have have ended, both in Vancouver and um, and the World Cup right prior to the season, um, you know, the idea that maybe he wasn't as equipped to deal with the modern, the, the quickly changing game, and his strategies were not uh, going to be. Um, that successful, but with a good goaltender and, and some good, some, some, some depth and, and some, um, some good shooting and all the, uh, let's say some good luck involved as well. But I think he's done a good job. That team is just so surprising that they've done as well as they have. And that's one I like to watch, um, uh, out West, you know what? I was, I was big on the Bruce Boudreaux bandwagon. <laughs> I, I thought he would might be the most important free agent signing of the summer. I thought he would have the greatest impact, uh, on a team success of all the people that changed places this summer. Um, 
he might be doing that. Now, I don't know if he's meant to do it by Devin Dubnik having a 950 save percentage because that probably won't last forever. But um, I, I want to see how that plays itself out. You know, I, I, they're kind of riding certainly Devin Dubnik and, and a ridiculous season by him to, to success. But I want to know if there's going to be something more sustainable in that mix than just um, an incredible year by the, a really good goalie. Because I, I believe that Bruce Boudreaux um, had the ability over 82 games to get a lot out of his rosters in different style of play. And I wanted to see if he could do it again in Minnesota. Don't know if I've seen that just yet, but uh, I'm curious to watch it go forward and see if maybe if Dubnik falls off a little bit, can Bruce Boudreaux get that team um, to win anyways because he's that good of a coach. You see, Mike, I'm from Columbus, Ohio, and I write about the Blue Jackets uh, here. And so it doesn't matter who we've had on, about the like three, four, five last people, I ask them a question about, uh, you know, a team that they've been enjoying, and they always say the Blue Jackets. And it doesn't really matter to me, you know, whether or not, you know, that I'm covering the team. It just makes me smile because after all this time, you know, watching the team since, like, you know, mm-hmm. my, basically my birth <laughs> and now seeing something good happen, it's uh, rare and uh, few and far between. Cam, last one for you. Yeah, I wanted to ask one thing, because on this show, we've uh, we frequently had people, and I guess myself included, make kind of, like, put out an unpopular opinion about hockey. And one thing we've talked about is <laughs> getting rid of offsides, getting rid of, or having less teams in the playoffs, getting rid of the conferences. But do you have an unpopular opinion about the league that you feel everybody should embrace, but nobody really, nobody really embraces except for you, like a radical idea to change the league? Oh, wow. Um... You know, listen, radical doesn't have to make it unpopular. I mean, you know, the, ch- the problem with any big ideas is the, the, the unintended consequences, you know, how far-reaching they may be, no matter how well thought out they are. The most radical ones I have are probably not that radical to begin with. And one is um, I-, I would want the referees who do a good job and do what they're told to call the game the way it is written in the rule book. I think there are rules um, there to handle just about everything. Um, but the application, uh, is, is done not consistently, uh, not to the letter of the rule and certainly not based on game time or game situation. So, you know, what is a penalty in the exhibition game is not a penalty in February. What's a penalty in February is not a penalty in the playoffs. And what's a penalty in the playoffs is not a penalty in overtime in the playoffs. And I think that, um, would be something if they just did that, I think that would be a, uh, a simple way of, of, of making the game maybe a little bit safer, faster, more goals because there'd be more power plays and, um, and maybe just clean the game up a little bit that way. So maybe that's, that's one of them. Um, and the other one I have is um, kind of a newer one is the, the, the review situation on offsides. Um, I'd like the blue line to be a vertical plane, much like a goal line is in football so that you don't need your leg on the ice. Anything, if, you know, if you take the outer, uh, or the inner line of the blue line, if it goes vertically in the air and any part of your body touches it, then you have to do your skate. If it's your hand, then it's onside, which might help a little bit of, uh, of those reviews. Also, I'd like to see reviews added to self-induced high sticks like Lucic caught McDavid a few days ago. It was called on Jack Johnson. I think that should be reviewable. And uh, also maybe like pucks in the mesh, things that are very obviously a yes or no question all should be added to the review package to, uh, to avoid a, a blown call. 
for sure. Those all seem pretty common sense to me, and I, I think more common sense there is in the league uh, overall that it just it'll make the game at least a little bit more understandable to the fans itself. You know, when they're asking themselves, what's and I got one more. Oh, okay. I got one more for you. <laughs> all right. So everyone everyone wants more goals, right? I think everyone agrees that goals are a good thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but no, I, not a lot of people want to change the size of the net. So for sure, cut down on the goal equipment as much as you possibly can while making it safe. I'm not a goalie. I don't know how much things hurt, but I would like, I don't know anyone's shins who are 10 inches wide, right? So if the idea is to protect the body, don't make the pads 10 inches wide because nobody's legs are that big. I don't know anyone who's, there's webbing from their thumb to their wrist. So I don't know why you need a cuff there on a goalie mitt. So like definitely cut down the goalie equipment, but in conjunction with that, if you want to, um, maybe make the net a little bit bigger is just change the circumference of the post, make the post skinnier so that the outer edge of the post is the same. So it's the same four by six, but you're actually going to gain whatever an inch on every corner, because instead of having, I don't even know how big the posts are. Maybe they, are they two inches in diameter? I'm not even sure, but make it an inch, make them smaller. And that way the net actually gets bigger, although it still looks and feels the same. Okay, so, I mean, just circle back to what I said, but I need, to, I need to ask this to someone who played in the league. Am I nuts for thinking that offside's a bad rule? Uh, not that it's a bad rule, but that it, if you took it out, it, it, the game would be so incredibly different. And I think that's the hesitation. Um, if you took offside out, then what? I could, you could continue to hang a guy out the, 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 in front of the other team's net. Which is not a bad thing, I guess. You're thinking, well, open ice and fewer guys around the puck means more creativity and all those other things. But it would make the game look and feel very different. And that's where the hesitation comes. Uh, I, I, I can't even imagine the strategies and what the, the game might look like when that, if that were to take place. So um, <laughs> I would need to see that attempted at like a midget level. I couldn't even dump that into junior or the minors because it's <laughs> such a seismic shift in strategy. I need that like and like peewees and then see what happens for sure uh awesome we appreciate your time today mike uh, where can we find you on twitter and where can we uh find your work otherwise well given that i have the most common name in north america mike johnson <laughs> uh my twitter is uh mike underscore p underscore johnson mike underscore p is in paul underscore johnson uh that's all that was available when i started a few years ago so you can find me there and i'm uh I'm on NHL Network uh, most nights or some nights and uh, do a little bit of NHL radio as well during the day. So you can catch me on 11 to 1 during the week sometimes. And, uh, yeah, I'm around. So you'll find You'll see me. <laughs> awesome. Thanks for your time today, Mike. Have a good one. All right. Thanks, guys. back after our conversation with Mike Johnson. Uh, Cam, what do you think of the conversation? Obviously, we're going to ex- uh, expand on this a little bit, talking about the Panthers, but how, how are you doing, and uh, what do you think of the conversation itself? I'm personally offended that he didn't actively agree with me that offsides is a bad rule. I think that offsides is horrible, and from my experience playing hockey growing up, and then now playing ball hockey in a league where they have a rover offside rule, I think that that the offside rule is it's just bad it doesn't make any sense like the rule that we use in my ball hockey league and it's, yeah it's fucking ball hockey whatever but 
what it allows you to do is you go in and you get the zone and you have to stay like on side for the blue line obviously it's the same thing but once you have the zone you can go all the way back to the center line without without getting cleared so it opens up the offensive zone completely so your defense can kind of like rover around like that and it just it opens up the space so much <laughs> thanks for giving us the inner workings of your ball hockey league I, you're welcome I'm, I'm, I'm a big fan now with the I think what was interesting when he's talking about the Panther stuff is he was kind of on board. He kind of wasn't on board. I wouldn't, I wouldn't say he was necessarily waffling, but it was interesting to hear his reasoning. And I think what he said was definitely a pretty good nuanced take on the entire thing. Cause I think a lot of times when the media says one thing, or, you know, does another, we see that, you know, it's an ultimate it's it's binary it's either one or it's a zero it doesn't really matter but i think he gave a good nuanced take on it. what what was your thoughts on the uh the the panther situation i mean the panther situation is i think it's largely optics i mean basically what everything comes down to is the way in which they're perceived and a lot of that comes down this isn't really that much different than what happened in moneyball um when you read the book and they talk about the response that the media gave the athletics during during their kind of stats renaissance in 2002 and it was like you know the team won the division the previous year and they were good right so why switch things up and they switch things up and then you know the media was was negative and the media now i mean i'm not going to cast an overarching blanket statement about all the media but i mean the response has largely been negative and you can't really blame them for that i mean the results aren't that good in the standings but you have to also remember like the Panthers were terrible at this point in time last year, too. And it was right about now, I think it began on the 15th of December 2015 when they went on that long, I think, 11-game winning streak and totally turned the season around. So there's no reason to think that, I mean, they can't do a similar thing now. And it's like we're coming to major conclusions optics-wise 30 games into a season under a new coach. And I mean, or not even under a new coach, sorry. They've only been under a new coach for like six, seven games. And I mean, I don't know what you expect. Like, there's there was tons of teams this year. Even Minnesota took a while to get going with Bruce Boudreaux. I mean, um, Calgary took forever to get rolling too. That's just like a general reality with hiring a new coach and implementing a new system. Like, there's really no need to overreact. You're right. There really isn't any need to overreact. But that's just kind of like the nature of it all. Is that you know, if even we see a slight change, because it looks like uh, at least from Gary Lawless uh, works for TSN over uh, in Winnipeg, and obviously for. Winnipeg Free Press, press there as well. So he said that he called a couple of NHL GMs. He noticed, or at least what they told him, was that they, they noticed that Dale Talon was now taking uh, you know, the trade phone calls. But that makes sense because previously it was Tom Rowe who was taking him and now he's on the bench. So you don't expect him to do, take both. But what, what it really means is who knows. And I don't think in the grand scheme of things because Dale Talon was the president of Hockey Ops and what ended up happening is he ended up getting a diminished role. They kind of put him there like, all right, there, uh, Dale. You just you just sit there, and we we'll uh, we'll do all this around you. What you mean is fine, and I think if you have a hockey mind like him there, I don't think there's anything wrong with it. But I don't think there's going to be that drastic of a change. If you're if you're someone like Vinny Viola who decided to invest in this, and you're going to like give up like 30 games in, no, like, not a chance. There, no, that's way. that's not happening. And, it, and so I also think that, how do you. How do you give up on this team right now, considering all of their players are locked up to long-term contracts? Like, which one, like which one of these guys is just going to disappear? Like, are you <laughs> going to get rid of the? Uh, I mean, Keith Yandel contract, Aaron Ekblad, Jason Demers. Like, I'm not really sure because people are talking about the moves they made being wrong. But I'm 
which which move was wrong. I mean, they say that they got less tough with Eric Goodbranson or Dmitry Kulikov, but I mean, both Yandels and Demers are playing well. It's Aaron Ekblad who's not pulling his weight on the blue line the way that he has in the past few seasons. And I mean, like I, I'm I'm just I'm just confused because people say that there's there's problems with the way that they're putting their team together because of the numbers. But then you look at all the moves that they made arguably because of the numbers, and it seems like those are the best things they've done. Whereas all the underachieving are players like um, Nick Bugstad and you know Aaron Ekblad and players that are from like the old regime. I don't really understand you know, the need to point out these kind of players right now as well when you realize that a lot of these players are injured too. You know, mm-hmm. what are you going to do when like, an Uber is out or like, you know, when Barkov is out for a short period of time? You, obviously injuries happen to everyone in the league and everyone has to deal with it for a period of time. But, you know, there's not a lot you can do. Trying to like replace a top six player is a lot, lot different than replacing like a bottom six player. So if they lost like Derek McKenzie or Sean Thornton for a short period of time, that's, a, you know, bit different than anything else, right? And so... I understand what's happening there, and there's going to be some time in which Tom Rowe is going to have to adjust himself and make sure that the game itself, um, you know, is inside his sort of philosophy. I wonder how long it's going to take. I wonder the, the, the leash is going to be there. And as, as long as this keeps happening, I think that this discussion is going to still like, keep on taking place. Well, this is this thing's never. This thing's not going away. I mean, <laughs> this is. This is this is hockey's money ball, and it's going to be a point of discussion for a long time. I mean, I'm looking at the Florida Panthers' kind of uh, recent stretch here, and I mean, there's a lot of instances in which they're out shooting the other team, and they're losing. And I think ultimately, like I don't know, I've said this multiple times, but the Panthers are a team you play the long game with, and if you're consistently out shooting your opponents and you don't win, then it's like okay, well, like eventually the, t- the tables are going to turn. Like I'm, I'm digging into their advanced numbers a little bit more, and what I'm seeing is that while they're towards the top of the league in like shot attempt percentage. They're at the very bottom in high danger scoring opportunities for and against. So they have the worst percentage and they're allowing the other team to get a lot of high danger chances when they're not generating much themselves, which I think ultimately comes down. I, I would I would personally blame that on on it being a totally new system and the players learning it because I think high danger chances are basically you fucking up and it's like I'm making a bad play and the other team getting a, a shot in the slot or something like that. It's like a it's it's basically a stat for a mess up. And if you're messing up a lot, I, I, I would blame that on a system play. And I think that's something that will go away with time. Definitely. And I, I think, meanwhile, on one end of the spectrum while we're talking about the Panthers, you know, losing and, uh, you know, not necessarily having the best of stretches. Uh, on the flip side, the Philadelphia Flyers are now at a 10-game winning streak, their like, biggest winning streak since 1985, I believe. What do you think of this Flyers team? And you know, and we've tried. We had Travis Hughes on, and he's obviously part of uh, Broad Street Hockey. And I touched on uh, you know the Flyers just a little bit, and we're hoping to you know have a few more uh, Flyers people on within the next couple of weeks to talk about their stretch because they're obviously one of the the Metro teams that's been the strongest. But what do you think of their stretch thus far? And um, are you a fan of what they've done this year? Because they started off pretty slow, and now they're just on fire, and they're up there with the likes of a. Uh, the Penguins and Rangers and uh, Capitals. Yeah, I think the Flyers are good. I mean, I watched them play the Oilers the other night about a week ago now, and um, I mean, it was a... The Oilers had two separate two goalies, and the Flyers just, like, pounded back, and they just have this attack that keeps coming at you in waves, and they give up a lot defensively. Like, they... They're like a they're like a true run and gun style team, and I mean, other teams are like that. The Oilers are like that. The Toronto Maple Leafs are like that. And there's going to be stretches when you're a team like that where 
you know, your goalie gets burnt out because they're getting peppered. Or you're, like I said, with the Panthers, you're allowing a lot of high danger chances against. But once their goaltending comes through and Steve Mason starts playing like Steve Mason, who's, you know, underrated and like very good, then this is the team you can do it with. Like if you have a good goalie who can bail you out, I mean, I'm, like the, the Blue Jackets have this too right now with Bobrovsky, and he bails them out like the other night against the Oilers again, like five really good saves. Like you can play this style. You can't play this style with bad goaltending, but you can play it with good goaltending. And earlier on in the year, they were getting bad goaltending, but they're not going to get, you know, 65 terrible games from Steve Mason. They're going to get maybe 10 or 15. And the rest of the time, when you're playing that running gun style and you're scoring a lot, generating a lot, but giving up a lot. And you have like more skills and skill than other teams do, which the Flyers do. Then it's gonna it's gonna work out for you. And that's what we're seeing with this winning streak. Are they as good as ten games in a row? Probably not, but like they are a good team. The Flyers, much like the uh, the Rangers, for me, is that they have some players on their team that are obviously pretty good. But then I look at some other players in the team, and it doesn't matter if I look at their numbers. I just have preconceived notions in the back of my head that like, wow, this guy isn't good. And I think to myself. Well, this team overall can't be good because they have like two, three, four of these players that I'm not necessarily a big fan of. And there's just a preconceived bias on my end where I'm just like, I've, I mean, I obviously in the Metro, I watch these teams a bunch and I think to myself, wow, he just got spun. He obviously isn't very good. And you, like you, you see that with like, you know, possibly like a Brandon Manning or you see that with like, uh, you know, Vandeveldi or like Bellamare. And I just think of him and I go, these guys like aren't particularly good. But then you think to yourself, well, the top six is pretty good when you have a Simmons, a Voracek, uh, a Giroux. And in a Shen, I mean Shen recently has been an absolute terror. He had a hat trick the other night, game winning goal, uh, I believe last night. So what are you going to really do like, if the top players are performing the way they can, and you have like Agostas Bear performing well, and you have an Ivan Provorov who's now absolutely tearing it up and is on the same level as a Zach Wierenski in the Metro Division? It's it's tough. It's really tough. And I, and that they're. At some point, these teams are going to have to start losing at the top of the Metro. It's just the way that it goes. Um, but I really, out of all five of them, I really don't know who it's going to be. They're obviously, if you point at the Blue Jackets, you can take a look at their goaltending and say, hey, you know, that if they lose Bobrovsky, they could be in real trouble there. Um, you can look at the Penguins. They just lost Chris Letang for about three weeks. And they have some good players in Ian Cole, Olimata, and um, Justin Schultz, but do you really trust those? And I know, <laughs> I know, it's tough, that's tough to say. That's, that's funny. I know, but he's been having a bunch, a fair amount no, of multi-point, multi-point games this year, and I wonder, like, there's going to be injuries that are happening, and one of these teams is going to falter a little bit. And I don't see how at this point, when they've like, you know, only a quarter of the way in the season and have almost hit 50 points, how they can, you know, not make it at this point. Like, because if you look at it, it's pretty, it's going to be pretty damn tough for them to not make it. You have to go almost under five hundred to like at least hit like the ninety ninety point fre- threshold with the way that the the season's adding up. Do you who do you think falters uh, down the stretch there uh, overall? I'm not sure if one of them falters to the extent that they collapse and miss the playoffs, but I feel like teams are going to slow down. Like I don't think the Blue Jackets or the Flyers are going to continue winning at the you know eight nine hundred percent winning percentage they've been operating at in the past month. I I I still don't think. Um, the Rangers are going to be able to keep up their shooting percentage. Uh, I mean, the Penguins, I don't think they're going to have a hard time. I think Washington's going to pick it up a little bit. And ultimately, like these are five playoff teams, and it's there's going to be some shuffling around, but they're five good playoff teams. And they're, they're probably five if, of the six best teams in the East. Five, five of the six or seven. I feel like the good teams in the East are Pittsburgh, New York, Philadelphia, Columbus, Washington, Montreal, and Boston. And I'd, I'd probably put Tampa Bay in that category, too. 
but like ultimately like those five teams in the metro i imagine will make the playoffs i don't see you know carolina or new jersey or the islanders or uh, a wild card team from the atlantic division beating any of those five out i really don't I, I like i said they'll slow down a bit but like they're all they're all good they all have like a lot of skill on their teams and barring some crazy injury like to a goalie then they should all be fine now i want to ask you a little bit of a hockey philosophy question because you brought up uh when the oilers got lost to the blue jackets and i could tell i could tell there's a little bit of pain in that comment i want to ask you overall is there a player or is there a team that you strongly 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 dislike or that you have like a preconceived bias on your end a team that I don't like? A team or uh, a player? A team or a player that I don't like. I, I've said it before, and I, I cannot stand the Minnesota Wild. I really just don't like watching them. I find them so boring. I find their style of play just like repulsive to watch. I'm like a real big fan of the run and gun, so I will say that I, I'm quite a big fan of what the Flyers are doing. And I also enjoy what the Leafs are doing. Uh, those teams are like really fun to watch, but when I watch the Wild, they just clog the zone, and it sucks. And I hate watching that. I mean, I'm, there's nothing wrong with it. I don't dislike... You know, like the any players on that team or the city are, I don't, I just don't, don't irrationally hate them for like some random reason, but they're just boring, 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 boring. And of course, I mean, like a lot of teams in the West are kind of the same way. Like, I mean, for a skilled team, the Blackhawks do that too. The Predators do that too. I mean, watching Anaheim, watching the Kings, like, oh my God, the Western Conference has got some boring hockey, and it's kind of funny that the Oilers um, kind of do the. Uh, run and gun thing and it doesn't really work against you know teams like that that are uh, just clog it up and it sucks it just sucks not being able to watch you know players fly around and do their thing but if you got rid of the offside rule maybe that would change things for sure i think on my end the team that i and this is going to be you know no surprise to anyone obviously we're where my allegiances lie in my uh you know geographic location but you know whenever i watch the penguins I obviously can enjoy them for what they are as a team, and I can uh, like you know observe like you know Sidney Crosby is very good, Evgeny Malkin is very good, Phil Kessel very good, Chris Letang very good, and I like like but the thing is I can't stand the fans that surround them, and I'm sure we have I'm sure we have some Pittsburgh listeners, but a lot of times what ends up happening is that there's like some hardcore arrogance coming from it, and you'll have that from a team that wins all the time, you'll have that from Blackhawks fans, you'll have that, and it. What's interesting is like you write something about their team, and you'll find that you know you're not saying they're good enough, or you're d- you're doubting them in one way, shape, or form, and that that upsets the fan base. And so, it's not necessarily that I hate them; it's more of kind of just an annoyance. But I just wanted to see your take on it all to see if you had any team in particular that you know, no matter what, you're you're always going to have a little bit of a uh, bias against them. I don't think there's a fan base in the league that doesn't have annoying fans. I mean, That's this is true. a noticeable there's, there's, thing. <laughs> there are annoying fans everywhere. I, it's just, I just find it interesting. Like when I write stuff, where I end up he- hearing like the biggest, uh, you know, uh, not necessarily uh, feedback, but it's like you know, biggest chirps. <laughs> it's like I'm like, all right, uh, I guess it'll just be from the same three cities over and over again. It's, it's always teams that are good. It's like you definitely have that. You have the you have the right to be condescending, I guess, when your team is good. Because what's someone going to say? I mean, like, as from an Oilers fan perspective, like, what am I going to say to a fan of the Los Angeles Kings? They're going to be like, "Well, our team's won, you know, t- twice." Like, fuck you. <laughs> it's kind of like, well, yeah. What can you say, right? And then, like, the only thing you can fall back on is like, oh, well, you know, like eight years before I was born, the Oilers were really good. 
But I mean, as a Columbus Blue Jackets fan, you don't even have that to fall back on. <laughs> I don't really know. Like, what, what do you even say when people talk down to the Blue Jackets? <laughs> like, what's your response? Uh, it normally just goes, you know, we have a pretty nice arena. You should come out here sometime. We really enjoy your business. You know, it's, <laughs> it's, it's, it really is just like you have to kind of be kind and just, you know, let it be. And I, I, what's interesting, too, is that when you're in this area is that there's, there's hockey interest in Columbus. Not all the time is it in the Blue Jackets itself because we have a fair amount of transplants as well. And you look at like the bandwagoners, you know, with the the Blackhawks, the Penguins, the Bruins, and that's completely fine. I, I don't really mind it. That's kind of someone else's prerogative. But it you see it a lot because, you know, the product on the ice isn't as good. <laughs> They'll flip over at some point in time once they see everyone else in the area finally supporting the team. But for now, that's just the way it's going to be. And I, I that's what I will – personally be you know monitoring closely is how that like flip over begins because there was a fair amount of it when when the blue jackets had that series against the penguins you just saw it you saw a lot of people oh, yeah. it, at the beginning of the series uh, there was you know people wearing penguin stuff but by the end of it there were you know a fair amount of blue jackets fans that were wearing um or you know people that would be wearing the penguin stuff wearing the blue jacket stuff and there that's just the way it is because you're not going to be able to travel obviously three hours for a seven o'clock game when you're, you're at work from eight to five but hey we, we, pretty much winning just changes everything i mean if you if you're watching a team that's good then like i don't know the problems all go away like it's so easy to jump on and just start cheering for a team once there's success and and, and it, it 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 absorbs the city completely when a team's actually really good and i mean that that's the same for like any place like whether it's florida whether it's in canada whether it's in california whether it's in new york like people will care if the team is good and the casual person i mean you're not going to spend money on watching a team that's bad that's just the way it is i have one last question for you before we go and you know close up the show itself but did you get a chance to see mike hoffman's hit on uh logan couture that was one of the like the, mo- the more brutal hits that i've seen this year just from a like non-respect standpoint because it was just a blatant move to injure someone did you get a chance to see that at all no i didn't see it it, it was pretty I, I don't know if what obviously with the, the department of player safety it's kind of like a spinning wheel of justice you don't really know what's going to end up happening and coming out of it but i those kind of things seem to have left the game at least from an injury standpoint there's still like times where you, you know someone's over the ice someone reaches for it they clip the head i don't necessarily see that as you know intentional because how the heck are you supposed to get out of the way of something like that and what ends up being amounting to like half a second and obviously i'm you're watching like i'm watching this clip right now holy shit <laughs> that's a that's terrible and the ironic thing is that they're oh wow oh that's bad yeah no that's horrible that's yeah that sucks <laughs> But, but, what I, but what I wanted to bring Real time up, action. <laughs> but what I want to bring up because I, I I wrote over right over at the comeback and I actually covered a couple of those dirty hits that ended up happening uh, uh, in the NFL where they uh, Darren Sproles got blown up um, when he was punt returning and then there was uh, Harry Douglas on Chris Harris Jr. where he took out his knees and I wrote something like hey maybe they should just embrace something like the uh, you know the NHL where they just have a dedicated like player safety place where they hand down these suspensions rather than like, you know, this like roving like commissioner who like hands down these like ominous suspensions. I think it'd be smart, but by the same token, we're not, we haven't seen many suspensions this year. Have you noticed that at all? No, it's been a really, it's been a really clean year this year. There hasn't been, there hasn't been much bullshit this year. There hasn't been much dirty play. And and I was wondering whether or not it's because the, the, the department of player safety has been a deterrence 
Or do you think that overall they're just not calling as much because they think that the players kind of have an understanding of what's happening? Because I don't, I don't see how the, how Mike Hoffman gets out of this without a suspension, right? No, definitely not. But I think that I think that hockey now is so systematically oriented and. We talk about the analytics movement and whether it's actually taking shape. Well, it clearly is. I mean, there's way more skill in the league than there has been in quite some time, and there's way less there's way less grit and way less toughness. Or, I, I, I mean, I'm not going to say grit and toughness. I mean, obviously, skilled players can be gritty and tough too, but there aren't players who are solely there to be like a physical grinder that just goes out and throws big hits. That that role is like damn near extinct now, and it's not really surprising when you have a lot of skilled players who. I mean, they don't play that game. That this stuff isn't really happening, and I mean, uh, taking penalties is such a deterrence in hockey now. I mean, everyone's special teams are so good, everyone's power play is so lethal. It's so hard to score at even strength that you do not want to get penalized. So it's not surprising that a player wouldn't want to take, you know, a five-minute major for cross-checking someone in the head. It's just not worth it. Like, what did what did Hoffman gain from doing that? Nothing. That's just stupid. It's like, what are you doing? And I think that's why a lot of people are trying to get away from it now because if they don't then, you know, your team's going to be on the kill. And I think that's something that a lot of teams have started to embrace as well, is if you, like, you know, cause a penalty, you your team is down a player. There was a period of time, like, and that always weirded me out when there'd be, like, either fantasy or video games or anything like that, where, like, penalty minutes were, were like, celebrated. Yeah. Like, I, I No. You look at a player that's drafted and you go, oh, man, he had, like, 30 goals, 30 assists in his, like, in uh, the OHL. But he also had, like, 150 penalty minutes. I'm like, why? Like, why, 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 why is that a good thing? And I think that that discussion is rarely have had anymore. You might see it on a couple of, like, message boards and things like that. But that's a good thing that, like, you've, you've kind of gone away from that. And I, I wonder... If Hoffman doesn't get this, if we'll, uh, this isn't obviously a causation correlation thing, but I wonder how hard they're going to come down on Hoffman and, and whether or not it's going to be kind of setting a tone for the year because there's only been, you know, a one, a two, a three gamer. There hasn't been anything large this year, but this seems like it, it should be a, a bigger punishment, don't you think? Oh, definitely. That's that's really bad. There's just no reason for it either. I mean, like, <laughs> it's just a totally unprovoked random thing. Well, yeah, the intent is totally there, and that's why I think that it's going to end up getting the, the, uh, a pretty steep punishment overall. But who knows? And that's why the Department of Player Safety is so goofy, because anytime people are just kind of like, eh, who, who knows what's going to happen here? Uh, but I guess that's today's show. We'll be releasing, releasing it today on Thursday itself. Um, we're going to try to go back to the Monday, Wednesday, Friday schedule. It's going to be tough, though, with the holidays. It may end up being a little bit more dynamic. Make sure to follow uh, our new Twitter account, at WatchTheGameNHL. Follow me, at Sam underscore Blazer. Follow Cam, at Coom, C-O-O-O-M. Uh, <laughs> anything else before we go, Cam? No, I'm good. Cool. Make sure to rate and subscribe over on iTunes. At some point, we'll get this up on Google Play and a couple other places. We're also trying to find a place to put this other than SoundCloud because it is difficult to get that thing to work for us. But uh, until next time, we appreciate your time. appreciate you guys for listening. Bye.